Well, good morning and happy Easter. Thank you. Uh, we're on day eight of 50. We celebrate Easter for a long time in the church, and there's a reason for that um, because we need to remember that in the Christian story, we feast longer than we fast. Amen? Uh, we just came out of Lent, which was a 40-day time of penitence, and many of you fasted during that time. You gave up something fun or yummy to help you enter into the season of the cross. But now we're in the season of the resurrection, and we're going to celebrate that until May 28, which is a long time. And I really wanted to help my boys understand this, that um, we celebrate Easter for 50 days, and I realized in our house there is one way, above all others, that five- and six-year-olds keep the feast, and that's with candy. So because of Jesus, my kids will get one piece of candy every day until Pentecost. And I think that will make Pentecost a very sad day for them. (laughs) But we will cross that bridge when we get there. Anyway, Easter is a time of celebration. But I want to reflect for a moment about the fact that sometimes our emphasis on celebration can make it feel a little bit forced. For example, maybe you relate to this. You were in church last Sunday. You were looking around at all the pastels. You were seeing pictures of happy, smiling people on social media. You were watching the sugar high come and go from small people everywhere. And maybe you felt a little bit of dissonance within you. Maybe you wanted to enter into the joy of Easter, but there was a nagging sadness also tugging on your mind. And it made your smile or your songs of praise feel a little bit hollow. Maybe you went through the motions of the day with sincerity, but it was the sincerity of hope that maybe the motions would bring your heart along with them. Or maybe yours was more of a cognitive dissonance. You believe the resurrection happened, but you aren't sure what difference it actually makes or why we're all supposed to be so happy and excited about it. Maybe you are here this morning and you're not even sure you do believe Jesus rose from the dead and you feel some private shame about that. Like you're a little bit of a poser sitting in church with your bells or your Bible And you hope that your wishful thinking will pass enough for confidence so that you can blend in with everyone else. Whether you can relate to any of that or not, it's worth mentioning that many people did feel that way on the first Easter. On the actual day of Jesus' resurrection, his disciples' reactions varied wildly. Some of them didn't recognize Jesus when he appeared to them. Some didn't believe the news when they heard it. Some of them, even after hearing and supposedly believing, were still too afraid to do anything about it. In the original ending of Mark's gospel, we are told that the women meet an angel at the empty tomb who tells them, do not be afraid, Jesus is risen. Go and tell his disciples. Now the women we know are generally cast in the best light of all the disciples in the Passion Narratives. And this is why they're the first witnesses to the resurrection, right? Because they were the ones caring for Jesus' body after he had died. But Mark's earliest account ends like this. And the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Not exactly the happy, clappy Easter scene that we imagine, right? Actually, 
The resurrection accounts in all four of our Gospels include some mixture of fear and or disbelief on the part of Jesus' friends. In other words, Easter has never been an easy pill to swallow. This news that God has bodily raised Jesus from the dead, it was so surprising then as now, so miraculous, so wonderful, that it took some time to sink in, even for the people who witnessed it firsthand. And then even getting beyond the fact that, okay, this happened, but what does it mean? It takes some time. So Jesus appears to his disciples on a number of different occasions to help them grasp what has happened and to align their thoughts and feelings and expectations with what is now happening through their resurrected Lord. So maybe we need 50 days of Easter for more than one reason. We need some time to let this sink in. And what Jesus does with that time, specifically in his post-resurrection appearances, is to show us that Easter is bigger than we expect. His defeat of death is not merely the validation of his message, although it is that. His resurrection is the dawn of something totally new in this world, something that if we can even let ourselves imagine it, might seem too good to be true. That something is this. Through Israel's Messiah, God is remaking the world. Not in the sense of scrapping it and starting over, but in the sense of undoing the powers of evil that have held this world bondage to decay and death. This is why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits or the firstborn from the dead. Jesus' new body is a foretaste of what's to come. Easter is about new creation. In other words, Easter is not just the happy ending to Jesus' personal story. It's the beginning of God's new world. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now back to the nagging sadness you might have still carried with you to church last week. Back to whatever you might have um, said to your spouse this morning or heard on the news that makes you question how this could possibly be true. How could God's kingdom have come when we're still living with all the other stuff? the injustice and the broken relationships and the incurable diseases and the mental illness? It's a fair question, and it's the great tension of our time. Seth mentioned last week that we live, in a sense, in the overlap between the old and the new, the already and the not yet. But Easter is the dawn of that new age, and Jesus' resurrection is like the sun just creeping up over the horizon. It hasn't warmed us completely yet. It hasn't dispersed every shadow, but we can look to its light as proof that the night is ending, even if it doesn't feel true everywhere yet. Here's how New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it. The resurrection of Jesus offers itself to the student of history or science no less than the Christian or the theologian, not as an odd event within the world as it is, but as the utterly characteristic prototypical and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It's not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of the new world. The claim advanced in Christianity is of that magnitude. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation. Easter is the start of new creation. 
So what I want to do now is look at our gospel reading for what it has to show us about this new creation. If that's what Jesus is ushering in through his resurrection, what does it look like and how can we experience it? I think this story from John 20 helps us understand at least three aspects of new creation and how it comes to us. So let's turn there now. I'll begin in verse 19. On the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So the first thing that we learn about new creation comes from Jesus' body itself. It's the same body that died because he has the scars to prove it, right? But it's also a body that is completely healed and no longer hindered by its wounds. His body is material. It's in continuity with his lived experience, with his story on earth. But it's also somehow different. And we don't have too many details about this. You know, we don't know, for example, if Jesus' body walked through those locked doors, although my sons will insist that he did, and that our resurrection bodies will have superpowers. They are planning, in fact, to ask Jesus to teach them how to fly in the new earth. We'll see. We don't know all the details, but we do know that there was something different enough about Jesus' body that the disciples didn't always recognize him at first when he appeared to them. In his post-resurrection appearances, Jesus entered a locked room twice, and he vanished from sight on the road to Emmaus. It's kind of supernatural-ish. But he also ate fish and invited the disciples to touch him to prove that he was not a ghost or an apparition. We can't spell this out in great detail, but I do think we can say with confidence that new creation entails both continuity and discontinuity with the old. This is the first thing we notice about new creation. It's in continuity and discontinuity with what we've known. Now here's why this is important for Easter people. That's us. The new thing that God is doing in you and in this world isn't going to eradicate or destroy what has been. It's going to restore and redeem and glorify the things God has already made and has called good. Your body is good. This world is good. If you don't believe that, go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. This is our story. And of course, the very next chapter of that story reminds us that sin has fractured and corrupted God's good creation, and that we now live as both victims and perpetrators in that story. In fact, sin has permeated our experience of creation so profoundly that sometimes we think the only solution is to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you know what I mean by this? When we equate creation with corruption, Salvation then becomes an escape from creation rather than the redemption of it. Here's an example. This world is cruel and evil, but I'm going to heaven. My body is broken and dying. It's been violated. It's decaying, but my spirit is off to a better place. Now, of course, there's truth in these things, but they're not the whole story. The whole story is what we see when we look at Jesus, and we see that broken body put back together, eating breakfast with his friends. Now, we don't know exactly what new creation entails, but we know that it will make us more, not less, than what we are now. And this also applies to the spiritual element of new creation. 
the sort of inward experience of renewal uh, that we experience through faith, even as we await the renewal of all things. I'm talking about sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus that we're all experiencing. A lot of times Christians talk about sanctification in these terms. Less of me and more of you, Lord. Empty me of myself and fill me with you. And again, there's an element of truth in that prayer, but there's also some untruth in it. Because really, becoming more like Jesus doesn't make you less like yourself. It makes you more like yourself. Holiness is about becoming who we were always created to be as image bearers of God. And when you stand before him and you are made like him, you will be like him in all the unique ways he destined you to be, with your personality, your voice, your body type, your gender, your story. You might even bear scars like him that will be transformed into the marks of your passion, remembrances of how God uniquely has redeemed and rescued you. New creation is about continuity and discontinuity. But second, new creation comes to us individually and corporately. I love the and, it's my way to sneak in extra points into one. New creation comes to us individually and corporately. Notice that Jesus appears to his disciples while they are gathered together, and then he appears specifically to Thomas after he has rejoined his brothers. A lot of people look at Thomas as an example of doubt and how Jesus welcomes our questions and he meets them with grace, to which I would say yes and amen. But I think this is equally a story about how our doubts belong to and are healed in the context of Christian community. Notice that both times Jesus appears to the disciples, it's the first day of the week. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. That's the day that Christians immediately and henceforth for 2,000 years have set apart for corporate worship. In other words, it's as if John is saying, on Sunday, the disciples were gathered together and Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus meets us uniquely in our worship, our gathered worship as a community. Now, we don't know where Thomas was on that first day. Maybe he was still reeling from Jesus' death and he just didn't have the heart to gather with his friends. Maybe he had a stomachache. No explanation is given. But we do know that the disciples tell Thomas what happened and he says, unless I see it for myself, I will never believe. But then what does disbelieving Thomas do? He gathers with the disciples the following week, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. In other words, doubting Thomas went to church. One commentator put it like this. Thomas, in spite of his unsatisfied misgivings, had not left their company. He showed faith in act, if not in thought. On the other hand, the 10 had not excluded him, though unconvinced, from their society. I think there's something in this for those of us who feel isolated in our doubts and those of us who are strong in our faith. And let me just say, if you only identify with one of those groups, just wait a little while. Because the reality is that we usually alternate between the two. We go through seasons of doubt and also through seasons of great confidence. And in his season of doubt, Thomas did not abandon the assembly, even though he might have felt very isolated from the other disciples in their joy. 
Maybe he wanted to believe their testimony, but he just couldn't. Can you relate to that? Have you ever longed for an easier faith? Have you ever resented your friends or your spouse or been envious of their religious experience? Thomas was not in the same headspace as his friends, but he continued to worship with them anyway. He stayed in community with them. And what we see is that this community became the very location of Thomas' personal encounter with Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. New creation comes to us individually and corporately. Jesus met Thomas personally, but it was in the context of the gathered assembly. One theologian said it this way, the Lord met Thomas not privately, but in this public, churchly, regular space. This is part of the anti-privatistic, anti-individualistic emphasis of John's gospel, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How can we respond to this? I think we need to practice being the kind of community that welcomes individuals with doubt, discouragement, and even disbelief. And we need to expect that Jesus will meet them here. This is one reason I love Alpha so much, because it gives us one specific way to practice this. To make room as a community for people like Thomas to encounter Jesus among us. But I think we also need to practice finding our individual faith in the context of what God is doing through his people. We need to embrace that new creation comes primarily to the world through a community. And this is one reason I love Sunday worship so much, because it challenges us to remember that this table, where we meet Jesus individually, is a family table, that we don't know him apart from each other. And this becomes all the more meaningful when we ourselves become the ones who doubt or disbelieve or are discouraged. Because it means we belong to a community of faith that can usher us into God's presence when we lose sight of him ourselves. This community is our lifeline, just as it was for Thomas. Now let me pause here and say, maybe you are thinking, okay, but my problem isn't actually with Jesus. I don't doubt him. I doubt the church. And if that's you, I would just say, you're not alone. The church, too, is still living in this liminal space between the old and the new creation, which means the church always has and will continue to get a lot of things wrong. In other words, the church remains now as much in need of Jesus' ministry as it ever was. And sometimes, friends, that ministry comes to the church from the very people who have been hurt by it or who have felt alienated from its message. Sometimes those who know real doubt are the ones who teach us about faith. And that's exactly what happened to Thomas. Think about that. He went from disbelieving the disciples' testimony to making the strongest Christological affirmation of anyone in all the Gospels. Verse 28, after seeing Jesus and hearing his voice, Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. Nobody else in the Gospels addresses Jesus this reverently. Nobody else in the Gospels addresses him directly as God. 
This is Thomas' great gift to the church and it was birthed from his doubt. And this leads to my final point this morning. After witnessing new creation, after beholding and touching the risen Lord, Thomas then participates in it by proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is. The third aspect of new creation is that we are meant to be both recipients and agents of it. In the gospel, we are on the giving and the receiving end of God's renewing work in this world. And John 20 shows us this in such a beautiful way. It really is, at its core, a new creation narrative. The spirit of God that hovered over the void in the very beginning is here breathed out by Jesus onto his disciples. And the word that spoke the world into being here speaks to his friends as he names what he is doing. Receive the Holy Spirit. John even uses the same word here in verse 22 as the Greek Old Testament uses in Genesis. When God breathed into Adam the breath of life. This is a new creation story. And just as when the first human community was made and blessed and then given a mandate to steward the earth, so Jesus' disciples are given a job to do in this new Easter world. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The disciples receive Jesus' ministry, and then they are commissioned to participate in it. They are invited to see and touch and believe, and then they are called to go and proclaim what they have seen. And because they did, because they were faithful to that call, we now belong to that community as well. We are part of the one holy Catholic apostolic church because those who were sent went. That's what apostle means. It means sent one or messenger. And because the disciples went and proclaimed what they saw, we are now the ones that Jesus calls blessed in verse 29. We are those who have not seen and yet believe. But as children of this apostolic faith, brothers and sisters, we have inherited the apostolic call. We are invited to be not only recipients of new creation, but agents of it as well. We are emissaries of this new thing that God is doing in the world, even when we don't fully understand it ourselves. We are invited to partner with God in his work of renewal in every big and small way available to us. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are sent to our families and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our church and our city and our world. I don't mean to imply that this is easy. In fact, I want you to know I stand here this morning as the preacher and I love the way this sounds, but I don't fully understand it. I don't always know how to partner with God in the work of renewal or whether I'm doing it very well or not. What I do know is that some days I'm the one who feels like a poser in church. Some days I go through the motions of faith and I speak these words more as a prayer than a proclamation that Jesus is alive and that one day everything sad will be undone. Because sometimes what feels more real to me is the old creation, not the new. But ultimately, I find such great comfort in the fact that this story does not rise and fall on how I feel or how much I understand or even how well I think I'm doing. Brothers and sisters, our faith is not in our faith. It's in him. And we have been given this treasure in jars of clay, 
as Paul said, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He is the one who is making all things new. He is the one at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the one who has poured out his spirit to help you be both a recipient and a partner with him in his work of new creation. It's a great mystery, just like the empty tomb. It might take some time for us to come along with it, and we will never be able to fully understand or control it. But we can give ourselves to it, to him, together. And that's what we get to do today again. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for coming and for coming back from the grave to renew this world, beginning with Jesus and given to us and for allowing us, Lord, to somehow in some mysterious way be a part of that work, even as we wait to see it completed. And we pray that you would come again to each one of us this morning and move through our stories, our doubts, our questions, our experiences, and um, Lord, show us what it looks like to be a community that is believing and remembering this story together. Amen.